God, to think that we come with an expectation, as we should, that you are willing to speak to us and that you're willing to minister to us. God, give us a pause this morning to think about who we are waiting to hear from here today. The God who created the universe, who created the world we live in and everything that we've ever seen and actually gave us the ability to think every thought we've ever thought, wants to speak to us this morning, wants to share with us this morning. God, just give us a touch of what that means and give us a reverence and an awe for your word, for who you are, for the power of your spirit. God, I pray that the presence of your spirit would be felt in this room. And Lord, that we would understand when we leave here today that we have interacted with you, that we have been changed by you, that we are in relationship with you. Lord, not just that we've experienced you here, but that you go with us. And so Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for always being with us. Thank you for never forsaking us. And thank you for loving us. As we will see this morning in this passage, God, you have loved us from the beginning. Overwhelm us with that. Change our hearts with that. Make us more like you. Use this text this morning, Lord, to do all these things we ask in your name. Amen. Okay, ready for a flashback? You're going to love it. So um, for the younger members of our body, this may be a current wound, and, I, and I'm going to briefly poke at it, and I apologize for that. Scientific method. <laughs> there's the there's the groans I was waiting for scientific method okay you guys will probably remember this for those of us that haven't scienced in a little while uh, this this will come back quickly it was five easy, five easy steps you guys remember going through this in school the scientific method you know five easy steps and then there's one feedback step if you will and, and they're on the the screen behind me but I'll, I'll walk through them make an observation you remember this in science class you make an observation you ask a question you form a hypothesis, which is a testable explanation. Remember that. You make a prediction based on your hypothesis. You test the prediction, and then you iterate is the, the feedback or the follow-up step, which means that you use the results to make new hypotheses or new predictions or hypotheses, if you will, and, and you, you continue this process. This is the scientific method, okay? And, and I didn't obey these rules very well because if I actually learned from the mistakes that I made in chemistry class, we wouldn't have smoked that basement out so many times. Um, but I was in like a, a homeschool um, college prep chemistry class and we had some fun in that classroom because there was really no rules, you know, and the, and the guy who was teaching was like a mad scientist. And so he was like, yeah, pour it in there. See what happens, you know, and he was brilliant. So he knew we wouldn't die, but we also made his house pretty unlivable for a few hours occasionally. Um, so it was a blast. I loved that class, but um, we're not going to be doing any experience, experiments here this morning. Um, or anytime soon, but I was thinking about scientific method as I was reading this text, and I don't know why. So don't ask me why my brain works the way it does. It's God's deal. I just try to manage. So my brain went to scientific method, and, and it started to become a thing for me as I was thinking about this, about how many conversations I've had over the years with people in church or church leaders about what's wrong with the church. The subject matter is what's wrong with the church today? What's, what's the issue? What's the problems? And it occurred to me, as you read scripture so often, Paul, as he writes letters, starts identifying things. He starts making observations, right? And so he starts looking at these, these different things are going. If you look at the, the letter to the Colossians, it just started to occur to me as I read this, that as Paul see, was seeking to strengthen this, this church, he's observing 
he's questioning Epaphras, really the man who is the guy who was ministering to that region, not just to Colossae, but also to Laodicea and probably Hierapolis as well. He was observing he was questioning, he was hypothesizing, looking at these, these, these things, predicting them, testing them, and then iterating that process and going through this. Now, I'm not saying that Paul's like, oh, this is great for a scientific method, you know, like writing it down and coming up with a, a process of diagnosing church problems, but he certainly was using a method of looking at the issues and then addressing them, and I'm not trying to push a scientific way of doing church at all, like at all. I'm pointing out that our observations of the health of the body are only the beginning. We don't stop at observation. And a lot of times, participation in church is limited to observation. Observation, looking at the thing, hearing about it, and then off to our own private lives, off to our own thing. Not really thinking about the problems in the church start with us and our hearts being changed and then us teaching and training and discipling each other to grow and to change that process and that problem how to recalibrate. We've discussed this a lot in Colossians so far. It all starts with our belief in Jesus. That's where Paul's starting. The observation of we need to have a core. We need to have a center. We need to have a head. We need to have the, something at the middle of this that makes it all work, that makes it all tick. And Jesus is the one who does that. And then we base our subsequent actions on him on who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing inside of our lives. Rather than predict, as is useful in scientific method, we respond as a church with actions. We respond when we see what Jesus is doing or what he, is, he has revealed to us. Um, as we observe God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit and we accept his guidance in our lives. We start walking this out. There's a process, and I think that a lot of times as a church, we stop short at observation or even conversation without taking action. Because the problem is, is that all too often, I'm quick to observe, I'm quick to question, I'm quick to comment, and I'm extremely good at critique. I'm very good at, well, you know what the problem here is, is this. Can you fix it? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's... That's, that's where the rubber meets the road, though, as Mother used to say. You know, that's where the action actually happens. Observation is useless if we don't act. You can look at it all day long, but it's not going to, you know, we, we do this as parents. I, I bring up a lot of parental stuff because, you know, the season of life that I'm in. But, you know, we, we think about this all the time. You can keep staring at that load of laundry, but it's not going to clean itself. You know, you can keep looking at your room, but it's not going to clean itself up. In a lot of ways, we can keep thinking about how messy our lives are, but it's not going to be fixed unless we what? We get up and we do something about it. We change. I don't believe you'd be hard-pressed to get pastors of churches to observe and critique the problems with their fellowships. You know, most of them are very aware of what's going on, but that's not the difficult part, and none of them would claim for that to be where it has to end that are pastors who are actually looking for their churches to grow. The hardest part is applying the steady pressure over a long period of time that brings about the change that's necessary. If we want change in our lives, it's steady pressure over a long period of time most often. And what do we want? Give me the miracle. I need a miracle. And we're like, oh, I want to see this thing happen. Everything changes instantaneously. But how often is that the case in our lives? That does not happen very often for me. You know, this, this aha, boom, room shakes, lights flicker, and I'm different, right? Rather, we look back over a 10-year period and go, I was a lot dumber back then. 
you know, that's, we, we should be able to look back and go, a decade ago, I was a lot less wise than I am now. It's like, yeah, and 10 years from now, you'll be very disappointed in who you are right now. And it's like, no, it's not, it's not about being disappointed. It's about looking back and saying, I have grown, but it's steady pressure over a long period of time. That's what maturity looks like. And so as we make observation, as we recognize the things that we need to do, as the scriptures reveal to us the thoughts and the intents of our heart, and we look at what needs to happen, and we start testing out, going, okay, Lord, you call me out upon the wall. You know, we start going and doing the things that he's calling us out to do. <laughs> it's really sad that only the teenage girls giggled at that. <laughs> that totally fits the stereotype. But, uh, you know, as we start to step out, it's totally fine. Oceans is a good song. But as you step out into these things and you start doing it, we're testing out what God's saying. This is what you need to do. Trust me. I made you. And then we need to reassess our lives and iterate again, again, again. Start repeating the process. So as we work towards the goal, the goal of real transformational change, we start, as we noted last week, with Jesus, the image of the invisible. We start with basing our foundation and everything that we're doing off of who he is. We observe, we explore, and experience all that he is, and then we begin walking with him into maturity. Sanctification, it's a process, it's not instantaneous. So, let's get started. More sanctification, please. Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 through 20 is what we're going to look at uh, this morning, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll break this down. Let's read from verse 15 together, if you would, just so that we can kind of get this whole section in perspective, even though we studied verses 15 and 16 last week. So Colossians 1.15 begins this way, as Paul speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Paul continues in verse 17 um, from what we read last week, and he says this. He says, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's building off the prior verses that, where he explained that Jesus not only made us, he also saved us. And here in verse 17, he says, he is the one who sustains us. That sustaining power of God is so important for us to remember every minute of our lives the sustaining power of God, the sustaining power of Christ that's at work in us right now. Jesus existed before anything was created and he's holding all of his creation together currently. Currently holding all of us together. If that doesn't give you purpose, I don't think we understand. That should immediately give us a, an awareness of the purpose that we have in this life, that God is holding you together actively in this very moment. There is no spiritual power that's above him. Remember, uh, for the, her the heretical teaching that Paul was dealing with in that time, especially if you're looking at the Gnostic theology about angels and spiritual powers and all these things, Paul's saying nothing is above him. He's diffusing Gnosticism or any other kind of unique heresy, which worshiping of angels was something that was taking place in a lot of these practices, worshiping of spiritual powers. And, and we see this still today. 
We still see people who are looking for spiritual power to tap into and trying to worship that and seeking for that becomes their life's goal and motivation. And so what he is in effect saying to the Gnostics and anyone who's trying to think of a spiritual power and place it above Jesus, the authority of Christ, he says, you give a great place in your thinking to angels and spiritual power. You rate Jesus as one of them. Now notice this, how many people that you have discussed Christianity with or you've shared your faith with are willing to say, Jesus is trash. I don't run into that very often. Most often I realize people will say, he's a good guy. He did some, he did some good things. He healed people. He was a good person. He did this. He did that. I'm not going to say he was God, but he certainly had some kind of power going on. And, and most of the time people will admit that Jesus is a man of significance. But at the very best, people who don't believe in Jesus, who aren't, aren't following Christianity, will put Jesus on equal ground with other powerful people of history. And they'll want to compare him to them and be like, well, yeah, they kind of did the same kind of things and they, they misunderstand scripture. So a lot of ways people will rate Jesus as merely one of the spiritual powers or one of the great people who lived in history. What Paul is saying is very simple. He made it all. He's not equal. Never put Jesus on equal ground with any other power of this world. Never put Jesus on equal ground with any other human being. He created all of it. Paul is being very clear and specific. Scripture is clear and specific. And that's why when people talk about the Bible and they look at who Jesus is and they're like, oh yeah, you know, he's just, he just did some cool things. Like, well, if you're going to believe those cool things, why don't you believe all that the scriptures say about him? That he is God, that he created everything. He's the creative power, not only behind everything we see, but he's actually holding you together right now. And you should be very thankful because if he wasn't, you would not be here. You rate Jesus as one of these things. Far from that, Paul says, he created all of it. This is the God who died for us. The writer of Hebrews, chapter one, I'm not gonna surmise who wrote Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews. In chapter one, he enforces Paul's case, which if it was Paul, that'd be really cool if he was enforcing his own case, but I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is, we, we talked about this last week, we let scripture interpret scripture, we let scripture explain scripture, and Hebrews chapter one, verses three through five, really paints a, another clear picture that gives us more detail. It says this, the sun is the radiance, the sun being Jesus, obviously, is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is a biblical teaching all throughout. Jesus is superior. Jesus has ultimate authority. Jesus is sovereign over his creation. He's sustaining all things by his powerful word. Some of us, um, just recently had a conversation about current events going on in our world today. Just talking about different things, especially this last week that have happened in the news, you know, with, you know, generals being taken out from Iran and, and different things that are happening and the, the social climate that we're in, um, spiritually, socially, as we were talking about, it kind of hit me as it does from time to time. God knew all these things were going to happen. 
God knew all these things were going to happen. None of this is surprising him. Things in our world today are not surprising him. You know, the, the broken vehicles, the broken washers, the, the, the things on the, you know, we were like, these are big deals to me. But on the, the, the world economy, that's a small thing, you know, compared to like some of the things that are happening in the world. They're, they're important to us. They're big to us. But all the things that are happening down to the smallest detail of our lives to the world scale problems that we're recognizing exist today. God is not shocked. You know, he's not up there going, I never saw this coming. Never thought they would be in this situation. That should give us some comfort. Some of us, it makes us like, well, if you saw this coming, why didn't you do something about it? That is the question. Why isn't he? Because you don't learn to trust any other way, and neither do I. We don't build character, and we don't learn to trust. We talked about building character. Why is it all the hard stuff builds character? Why can't I build character while I take a nap? You know, like, why isn't that character-building exercise? Son, go build some character. You know, go sleep. You know, instead, we, we have to struggle. We have to go through things. God builds our faith. He builds who we are through the struggle and through the fire. God knew that these things were going to happen, and I believe when we look at the situations of our world today, this is very important for us, church. God put us here for just such a season. You and I are not here by accident. You and I weren't placed here, and and God was like, well, I got to put them somewhere in history. I'll put them there. He put you here, and he put myself here, for a reason. At this time, are we aware of that on a daily basis? That we were placed in this world at this time for just such a situation as we're in. We're in this juncture of history, and it's not an accident. He wanted you and I here at this time. This was his desire. It was his calling. We're here to bring him glory and to be a light that shines just as Jesus taught us to in John 1, 5. How prevalent in our society is depression? How many people do we know that struggle with suicidal thoughts? Who struggle with hopelessness in the midst of the church, not even outside the walls of the church, in the church, in the body, who are struggling with purpose, hopelessness, and darkness. It's happening to the church just like what happened to Peter when he walked on water. You remember that? Peter did great as long as his eyes were on Jesus, didn't he? Peter was walking on water. And we can get on Peter for a lot of things, but none of the other disciples got out of the boat. Peter's out on the water walking to Jesus. And so long as his eyes were on Christ, he was fine. Did it change the circumstances around him? No. He's still on a stormy sea. It didn't change the circumstances around him. It changed his footing. So long as his eyes were on Jesus. What happened when he looked at the wind and the waves? There he goes, right? He took his eyes off Jesus. He noticed the waves like we noticed the world. He noticed the wind like we noticed the culture, like we put our eyes on the culture, and we wonder why our footing is giving way. Church, if we want our footing solid, eyes on Jesus always. Eyes to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the one we need to stay locked on and stay focused on. The reason we're sinking and the reason that we struggle the way that we struggle is we're not trusting the Lord. We're not looking to Jesus. You know, we used to sing that old song. I have decided. Remember that song? To follow Jesus. What's the next line? Right? But but what's, what's the next line that changes? No turning back. 
why would you sing no turning back unless there's a temptation to turn back? There is a temptation to look at the wind and the waves, but we know better. We know better. Moment by moment, we have to listen to the reminding of the spirit and remind each other that it's essential that we follow the call. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. You know these verses right after the, the chapter of faith. Everyone calls it the hall of faith chapter, right? Hebrews 11, all about these heroes of faith. People that we look at and go, heroes? Yeah, the Bible's talking about how great their faith is. It's like, really? Samson? A man of faith? He had his moments. <laughs> he had his other moments too. Remind you of anyone? Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded, or since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, chapter 11, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. What does he say? Keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith for the joy that lay before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you ever think that Jesus, I think about this. Jesus set the example for us of where our eyes should be by living his human life with his eyes on the father. He had his eyes on the father, on the father's will, on what God was calling him to do. No turning back. He decided to obey the Father. So what do we do? We follow that example for the sustainer, for the maker, for the savior of our souls by putting our eyes on Jesus and there's no turning back. And the reason we start sinking is when we take our eyes off of him. If there is a rattling going on inside your heart, I'm not talking about the wind and the waves. That's happening for all of us. But if there's something going on in your life that's destabilizing you, if you are struggling in some of these ways that the culture struggles with, you start thinking that your life has no value or that you're too depressed to go on, you have taken your eyes off Jesus. Get them back where they belong. It will not fix the storm. It'll put your feet on solid ground, even if it's water. Even if it's water. Jesus is the answer to the tumult in our hearts. Jesus has created us for these last days. The wind is going to blow. The waves are going to rise and crash. Eyes on Jesus. We don't have this. He does. We don't have this. Don't think you have it. You know, you ever look at a kid, like especially us, you know, youth camp people. I got this. No, you don't. <laughs> you, know, you can see that whatever they're doing. Oh, don't worry, I got this. Like, dude, this has injury written all over it right? How many times is that the Lord looking at us? You don't got this. Jesus does. Eyes on him. That's when the church walks in the way that it should. And so verse 17 is powerful. He is before all things and by him, all things hold together. That includes us. He is holding us together. He has placed us here. Don't lose heart. Don't lose focus. Verse 18, he continues. He is also, and this is for the church, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. He is not only sustaining us, he is leading us and is our very life. He is leading us and he is our very life. I think we would all agree that if you cut off somebody's head, I'm not being morbid, but if you cut off some, something's head or someone's head, they may twitch for a while, but their productive days are behind them. 
I mean, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty standard stuff, you know? It's rightly said that the body is the servant of the head and is powerless without it. The body is the servant of the head and is powerless without it. He's not just trying to show us, Jesus is doing all the thinking. We just need to get connected with what he's thinking. That's true. But if you remove the head, the body dies. If you remove the head, the body loses its function. It's not productive. Its productive days are gone. And so here's the point, you guys. The body is the servant of the head and is powerless without it. Jesus. You cannot be disconnected with it. It's almost like Jesus meant what he said in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, he's using the the vine and the branches in that picture, but it's the same idea. Branch broken off the vine, gonna die. It's not gonna work. What an amazing privilege it is for us as a church to be the instrument through which he works. How amazing is it that the creator has attached us to him in such a way that he flows in and through us to get his will done? If that doesn't just amaze us, you really ought to stop for a second and we can just sit together and think about who we are. Yeah, that's impressive. That's really impressive that God can get anything done through me. It just reveals his power more. It really does. There is a warning here as well as an encouragement. I think there's an encouragement to think about us being connected to the head and that he is the one who is working through us, the church. But I think there's a warning. If we abuse or neglect our bodies, we understand that affects the the body's ability to serve the purpose of our minds, right? We discover this more and more as we get older. I want to, and I understand how to, but this isn't going to work. My body has not, you know, too many pizzas. I'm sorry. It's just not going to, I'm not going to get up there. You know, so many guys, we, we go on these mountain climbing trips and these guys would get up there and be like, oh yeah, man, I can do this. All the confidence in the world. One day in, I can't do this. I can't do it, Mike. I can't get up there. Or you could be like the guy that was on my rope line that like leaned back for three hours as I carried him up the mountain, you know, just drug him like, I am 20 years older than you, you know, like, the, but the thing is, you guys, is that we We understand that our bodies, if we abuse or neglect them, they don't serve the purpose of our mind very well, do they? Church, we are the body. He is the head. If we are not taking good care of ourselves as a church, we are going to hinder the work of God as he desires to work through us. We as the church need to be fit, so to speak. And what that means is that we are seeking the Lord, that our eyes are on Jesus, that we are keeping ourselves in a place to to do what he calls us to do, that we're mobile, that we move when he says move, that we're spending time in prayer and we're sensitive to his word and, and, and and in the things that he's teaching us. Disobedient or careless living as the church can make us unfit to be the instrument of the head. We cannot be marked by disobedience or carelessness. We are marked by obedience and by those who are watching and waiting. How many times did Jesus say, watch for my return? And, and, and what are our eyes on? What are we focusing on? Are we staring at our problems? That's not watching for the return of the Lord. Do our problems exist? Yeah, we all have them, lots of them. But are you letting it rule you or are you letting Jesus rule you? Because he is the beginning, as Paul goes on to say. He's the firstborn from the dead. That's a pretty cool thing to say. I'll never be able to say that. The firstborn from the dead. The word for beginning here, RK, it means, it means beginning in two ways. It means it in the time sense, meaning that like Jesus is the A of our alphabet. Right? 
meaning that Jesus is the A. In other words, he is the firstborn from the dead, meaning that the beginning, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one who came back from that. Now, we saw people get resurrected from the dead in scripture, didn't we? Remember Elisha? Or Elijah, excuse me. I put a sh instead of J. Elijah, you know, when he, the, the widow that he was, or the woman that he was staying with and the, her son dies and, and she's like, this is it. You're here to bring my iniquity back on me. And, and Elijah goes up and the kid gets up again. Yeah. He raised from the dead, right? What happened later? He died again. He died again. Lazarus, same story. You know, well, technically Lazarus was resurrected first. Yeah. But Lazarus died again. Jesus rose from the dead and has what? Live forevermore. He still lives now. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he is resurrected and will never die again. And it means this, Jesus set this in motion, the church. He is the beginning of the church. He is the beginning. He set things in motion. He's the original creator of all things, and he originally created the church. And Paul reminds us, Jesus isn't the founder that is passed on. He isn't the founder of the church that's passed on. In other words, he got something started and he died. Now it's up to us to take up the mantle and continue. You're not taking up Jesus's mantle. You don't take up the mantle of Christ. You are here to respond to his leadership as he who is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father speaks, ministers, and works through us. And this is something that, that I think we grow in as we get older as believers. You realize that Jesus is alive, speaking to us, working in us, and we should be receiving from him and taking action based on what we receive from him. He gave us his word and he's given us prayer. Are we walking out those things and letting him lead us to what he's called us to do? Are we getting caught in our traditions? Are we getting caught in our ways of life, if you will, our habits? Habits can be good. They're amoral. They can be good. They can be terrible, right? It's all depending on what that habit is based on. Is it something that God has given you? Habit of reading your Bible and praying? Good. Habit of jumping off buildings without a parachute? Well, that's not really a habit. You only get away with it once. Like, there, there's just, do you understand what I'm saying? Paul reminds us that Jesus isn't the founder that passed on. He died on the cross. He was the firstborn from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is essential to the Christian faith as it is the head to the body. Our belief in Jesus' resurrection, which is why we celebrate so hardcore on Easter, the reason why that's so important is because it's the same significance as a body having a head. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he didn't rise on the third day, our faith is unfounded and worthless. We have to be able to commune with a living Savior. That's the only proof that our salvation is sure, that Jesus did exactly what he needed to do and that the Father approved of his sacrifice and Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Those are powerful words. Thank God Jesus is alive. Thank God Jesus is alive. And here's the point. If we believe that Jesus is alive, are you communing with him? Are you in fellowship with him? Because if Jesus is alive, that's our situation. 
We have to be communing with him. He is our living hope. He is above all things, as Paul says here at the end of verse 18, so that he might come to have first place in everything. It's not that Jesus is working his way into that position. It's that he has revealed that he has first place in everything. He has revealed that to us. Now the part that we can't take as much time as I'd love to, but we just don't, there's no time. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Have you ever just wished that you could just like lay in that forever? You know, just like sink into it. Like there's so much there. I just need to like lay in this blanket for a while and think about it. You know, it's like every kid in the morning when they're supposed to get out of bed and go to school. Can I just lay in my blanket and think about it? You guys, I want you to note something. Look at verse 19 again. For God was pleased. Pleased for what? To have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself, whether it's things in heaven or things on earth, making peace, all this pleased God, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The act of reconciliation was initiated by God the Father. The act of reconciliation was initiated by him. You realize that God's heart toward mankind has not changed since the beginning of the time of time. And it wasn't changed by Jesus coming. God's heart towards men didn't change when Jesus came. He's like, now I see that they're worth it. Perfect. No, 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 no. God initiated this. This is solid biblical theology. God initiated the salvatory act for mankind. He started it based off of his love for us. He started this. God's attitude towards humanity was love, and it was never anything else. God began the process of salvation, and we can never forget that God loved us in the beginning. That God has loved us from the beginning, even when we were dead in our trespasses, enough to send Jesus to sacrifice for us. God loved us from the beginning. Let me, let me make this really clear, church. It is unbiblical to believe that God hates people. It is unbiblical to believe that God hates people. Okay? And so when that accusation comes, when people look and you go, you just hate people, that's all you do is you hate people. First of all, I mess up and I struggle with sin just like anyone else, but, but you need to understand something about my God. He doesn't hate people. He loves people, even the ones who are dead in their trespass and sin. And the fact, when you take what we just read before, that Jesus is holding everything together is evidence enough that he doesn't hate them. A God who hates just go, done with you. They're being allowed to live. We're being held together by him. Why? Because God loves us. Because he loves lost sinners. I read that statement so many times. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. It pleased God to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. We talked about this last week, which is why I'm really not covering this, this, this idea here that, that Jesus was the image of the invisible. 
that he was the icon, the Greek word they would use. He is the fulfillment. He's everything that people are looking for when they're looking for God. But not only that, this is drawing our attention to something. It was so costly for God to reveal his love to us by purchasing us back, to think that we would doubt his care for us because things in our lives are hard. To think that we would start having doubts, and we do. I do. I start having doubts about what God's doing. And we get called back to scripture again and again. God loves us. He started this. This act of salvation towards us. It, it's God's love for us has never wavered. Romans 8 verses 31 through 32 brings us back to firm ground when we get to stabilize with ideas that God doesn't care. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, we know the rest. Who is against us? Who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? He's like, do you doubt the love of God? You shouldn't. Because he has demonstrated to you in the most powerful way possible how much he loves you. The work of Christ on the cross is so powerful, it's able to reconcile all of creation back to God. Now, there's a lot of arguments about this passage of scripture, by the way. You see a lot of theological disagreements about it. There are so many different things about what Paul meant by reconciling all things in heaven, on earth. I read so many opinions. Let me just give you the, the, the summarized version. God's aim was to reconcile all people to himself through Christ Jesus. And it was so powerful, he redeemed creation as well. The act was so powerful, he redeemed the creation in lieu of what he did. His goal to save us, his power to save everything. The medium by which he did so was the death of Christ, which proved that there were no limits to his love. And that reconciliation extends to all the universe, earth, and heaven alike. It's such a wonderful opportunity for us, church, to remember this this morning um, and to respond together. And we're going to take communion in a minute um, and just remember Jesus. But as we think about this and we think about what God has done for us, when we receive God's gift of love, which is Jesus, he imparts to us a ministry as a church. And the reason why I want to go here is because we're talking about how he's reconciled all things. The first passage of scripture that comes to mind whenever I think of reconciliation is, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and it reads this way, verses 18 through 19. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you notice that? He doesn't just reconcile us. He reconciles us and then gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Now that you have been reconciled, it's so complete. It's so powerful. Your redemption is so sure. Now we've been given that ministry to work amongst the world ourselves. Not alone, empowered by the spirit, cleansed by Christ. It's nothing that we can do. None of us can boast, but it's so powerful and so complete that he's given us that ministry to work in this world. That is in Christ. He continues in verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. It's almost like the believers in Corinth would be like, surely Paul didn't. And Paul's like, verse 19, surely I did. You have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And he goes on in verse 20, which I didn't put up there. You are ambassadors. You represent him. 
We represent God to this fallen world. Church, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, right? We don't long, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're made righteous by Christ. And so I can say this and you cannot feel condemned. How we do in ambassadors? How we repping? Do you look like Jesus to the people around you? Do they see his attitude, his heart, his mind, his passion? Let's just start with the most simplistic thing ever. We are called to be ambassadors of the God who loved us from the beginning. And we can't get over a tiny squabble. They hurt my feelings. I'm not talking to them now. We've all been there, okay? We've all been there. But just for a second, let's pretend like we are his ambassadors. How do we represent God to people? Not even the world. What about our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we ambassadors in that way? Are we representing God's love to each other in that way? I can't help but think about Peter coming to Jesus. How many times shall I forgive my, uh, my brother who sins against me? Seven. You know, really tooting his own horn there because that was, that was more than double what tradition was at that time. Jesus says, seven times 70, go to work. I added the last part. Get to work. Start forgiving. Never stop. Start showing love to people and never stop. That's how we represent God. Well, they're walking all over me. Okay, don't be a fool. If you need to, if you need to separate yourself, you're not here to, you know, there, there's, some, there's some good counseling guidelines there that we can talk about. Don't be a fool about it. Be wise, you know, but here's the point. Are you loving people? And sometimes, sometimes loving people is walking away, church. Sometimes loving people is walking away. You don't believe me? Read the Gospels. What did Jesus do? Was he chasing people around? No. What did he do? He spoke the truth. He showed them love. He allowed them to choose. That's what we're here to do. We speak truth. We reveal the love of God. We allow people to choose. This is hard. Do you know what this requires? You're like, boy, this is a hard thing. I'm supposed to be loving and forgiving. And then sometimes like, you know, I'm not, you know, how to, yeah, Jesus said, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Balance. Sounds like we need the spirit to lead us. Sounds like we need to be in our word and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us through these situations because this is challenging stuff. This isn't easy. I'm not up here painting a picture that's just a stick man waving at you. You know, like the Bible paints a picture that's very detailed and, and, and it's, it's simplistic in, in understanding to know that we've been saved, but life is complicated. You better stay close to the Lord. We better keep our eyes on Jesus or we're sinking. Because the wind and the waves will not stop until glory. They will not stop until glory. And the reason I bring this all up at the end is as ambassadors of Christ, we need to remember where we start from. Jesus' sacrifice. What made us whole to begin with. And maybe there's some stuff in our lives that we shouldn't come to communion with that we need to confess and be free from. Maybe this is a time that we need to be confessing our sin. Saying, Lord, my heart's been wrong. You know what's awesome? John 1, 9, church, applies to every single one of us in Christ Jesus. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness right now. Right now. If you come and you confess in your heart, and we're going to give you a minute before we take communion together, 
to do that. I just want to call out anyone who needs that opportunity. That's between you and the Lord. Take it. You're only hurting yourself. Maybe there's some people that have hurt us. And maybe separation's been a healthy thing. Maybe there's some people that we need to be walking with through something. Maybe the separation has been caused by ourselves. Maybe we have been the one that's rent this apart. All I ask is that we come humbly before the Lord and ask him to give us his wisdom and his guidance. That's all we are to do. Come to the Lord, ask him for his wisdom and his guidance and say, Jesus, your forgiveness is for me. Remember, there's no condemnation. And remember that the bitterness that lies in our hearts we can be free from right now through forgiveness and confession. So I want to invite us, church, to do that together. As Before we take communion, they're going to distribute the communion too. We'll take it together. We're going to sing a song. Just take that time. Sing if you feel like you should praise and sing. Don't sing if you have business to do in your heart. That's okay. This time is just an opportunity. But as a worship team, have you guys come on up, and we're going to, um, we're going to sing together. Um, let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Lord, has been made just so apparent uh, in my life, God, through the last uh, couple years. Lord, that we need to be a people that is sensitive to what you're doing. And, and Jesus, that you were not being unkind or unloving when you uh, would allow people to, to make choices or decisions. But God, sometimes we just struggle with that balance of not being you. Lord, not, not being loving enough and not, not trusting you enough to work, Lord, maybe without us there. And, and so, God, I, I don't ask that you would allow any confusion to remain in our minds about situations that we're in. Lord, would you give clarity to your church as the head that is essential for the leadership of the body? May you find in us, Lord, a fit body. A church that has equipped itself and is ready, has taken the practical steps, Lord, to give our struggles to you, to give our pain to you. Lord, I pray that if there's people here this morning that need to forgive others, that they would do it. Lord, that they would forgive. Lord, if there's some people that need to move on from something, that they would be able to move on. Lord, as, as I have struggled, as you well know, and many here who are my brothers and sisters that have walked with me through things, Lord, there have been so many family struggles and pain and suffering over the last few years and God you have healed so much of that but in so many situations I've had to step away and allow you to work it's not it's not for me to change maybe that's the thing that your spirit is speaking to us this morning as well maybe we need to stop trying to be the one that changes everybody maybe we need to start being the one who represents you to the people who need to change. I can't change people. That's your job. What I can do is allow you to change me. I can allow you to change my heart. And so, Lord, give us the ability to be exactly what Paul called the Philippian church to be. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. Lord, I pray that whether people see us as, as enemies or as friends, they would see grace. They would see forgiveness. They would see you. Life's hard. 
And Lord, that's why you gave us the church. That's why you gave us the body. Not just your spirit, but Lord, each other to walk through these things because situations are difficult. And Lord, need to be looked at and need to be dealt with sometimes individually. But Lord, your word applies to all. And your spirit gives guidance to all. And we submit ourselves to what you're doing. Lord, for whoever is in need of just comfort and your peace, Lord, would you give it an abundant supply this morning? Jesus, as we remember your sacrifice, as we think of you who laid your life down for wretched sinners such as ourselves, how can we not feel loved and how can we not want to be like you? Use this time as we prepare to take communion to adjust our hearts, to recalibrate and put our eyes on you again.